0: you're listening to the clear creek resources podcast from clear creek community church located in the bay area of houston well, hey everyone, welcome to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Ryan. On February 20th, we hosted the End Times Forum featuring our teaching pastor, Dr. Yancey Arrington. And at the end of that, we had a QA. We told people that at the end, if we had some questions left over, we would sit down with him in the podcast studio and, and have him wrestle through some of those. And so we did. So on this episode, you get to hear part two of the QA. If you didn't get to see the uh, forum in person or if you haven't checked it out online, make sure you go to Clear Creek Resources and do. That, uh, But in the meantime, enjoy part two of the Q&A. All right, Yancey, welcome to the uh, podcast again. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be here, bud. All right, so we're here because yeah. we uh, we had the uh, End Times Forum, and uh, it was great. Yeah. Thank you for all your preparation. I know people appreciated it. Yeah, we had uh, a probably over 700 people there or close to yeah, it tons. in that room. It was and great. A lot of people. It was good to see it. And we told people when we were sitting up there on the stage, we said, hey, send in your questions. We're going to get to as many as we can. Yeah. And we had, I don't know, probably 45 minutes and we got through a lot of questions. Yeah, we
1: did. You did a good job of getting
0: through those questions. That's for sure. But we still ended <clears throat> with a stack of questions that we want to get through. Yeah. So I have a few here. Uh, it looks like I had eight. So okay. we'll see if we get through all of them today. Yeah. Um, but let's just start going. Rapid fire. Same uh-huh. rules apply though. Okay. Not don't ask, don't me ask you. <laughs> you are the expert here, so... We'll see how that works let's out. Do it. All right, here we go. First one. In a proclaimed post-Christian U.S., how do we best prepare our hearts to live in a world that has the potential to be like it was for Christians during John's time? How do we prepare ourselves
1: to live in that kind of world? Yes. Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I do think we're taking steps towards that in North America, for sure. Uh, it might do well to look at what how Europe's already done it, <clears throat> the believers there. Uh, I... I you know, everyone's kind of, not everyone, a lot of people freak out that, that we're moving into what looks like a post-Christian chapter for North America. And I, I don't, I'm actually, I don't know if I would say I'd celebrate it, but I'm not fearful of it only because what I think it's going to do is uh, often what any kind of degree of persecution or pressure, or just frankly, when the church isn't the cool kid on the block anymore, it allows the real believers to stay and the fake ones to leave, uh, false professors usually, when when they when it costs them something real, they bail, and that's just not me saying that. I mean, that's that's what we see from the New Testament on. That's what you see in Revelation. I mean, that's who Absolutely. John's writing to. You know? <clears throat> Absolutely, and so I I think personally, I'm, I'm encouraged by it. You, you might find smaller churches in the U.S., but I think you'll find them as, if we talk about the seven churches on a spectrum of more faithful to less faithful, I think it might reduce our numbers, but increase our fidelity. I think what you're going to find uh, maybe in the future is a church that's leaner and meaner and probably more about gospel mission than they've been for a century or so. Um, I, that, that's kind of my hope. So I'm, I'm not even really that worried about it, but but what that would mean for us is we've just got to get used to not being the cool kids on the we got to be used to uh, people not liking our perspectives, our positions. Um, and hopefully we can present those things in ways that are loving and winsome and gracious, but we're not going to be the popular majority culture. Uh, and, and frankly, we haven't been for, for a number of decades now. That's, that's completely shifted. And so, you know, how do you prepare for that? Here's what you do. It's going to sound like a Jesus juke. Like read the Bible, read the New Testament because the New Testament is born in a world where Christians are a minority culture. And they experience all kinds of hardship and the further you go on, the more hardship you experience. And that's why you have Paul saying things like all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's like, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus in a world that's been against him, you're going to take some heat. And so I think we just have to recalibrate our expectations. Gone are the days where we get to decide uh, through the various means of power how things shake out in the United States. And that's um, that that that's been a long time coming. And again, there, there are bad things about that, but frankly, there's some good things about that. So um, I, I just think we're... You know, read read the New Testament, uh, but read Revelation again and again and again. I mean, this is a this is a, a community of faith, a group of churches, and really uh, all of all of Christianity back in the first century around ninety five A D, which. They are taking it on the chin all the time. And Jesus just says, keep looking to me and be faithful. So um, th- that's, that's what I would say. If anything, uh, followers of Jesus should deepen themselves in the community of faith in their local churches. Uh, know their scriptures. Uh, because the world's going to continually try to tell us what to believe about gender or sexuality or finances or whatever else, and already you see younger generations of Christians or people that say that they're Christians, uh, your generations and even younger. So I don't I don't remember the name is after your generation. Is that Z? Uh, uh, Z. So they're already starting to shift on views that that basically Orthodox Christianity has held on to for two thousand years, and they're going ah. I don't know. And that's the kind of stuff I think Revelation warns us about. So uh, all that being said, uh, those are the kinds of things that I think we need to just be, you know, we we don't need to double down and throw out our guns towards everybody. We need to double down into God's word, into God's community, and to be on God's mission. Hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. All
0: right. That's one down. Let's
1: Keep going. <laughs> Notice how so you you responded to some of that. So I'm gonna yeah, have to ask yeah, you a question no, no, here. No, I'll be all, right.
0: <laughs> all right. So are there other examples of apocalyptic uh, genre, and how do we get our understanding of this genre?
1: Yeah. So yeah. That's now I've had that asked a lot because what I tell people, what we've told people in Revelation in our study in our series is that what John is doing again around 95 AD was really not original as far as the genre, this apocalyptic stuff, which is highly symbolic. It usually entails a a vision of heaven given by an angel or some kind of heavenly emissary to talk about the future. Well, that's obviously what we have in Revelation, but we've we've had texts like that that have been within uh, the Bible and outside the Bible. What, what scholars would call uh, extra biblical or, or uh, extra canonical. Uh, those are just fancy words that say books that were around that that a lot of Jewish believers read, and then even Christians around you know after Jesus came, Christians believer uh, Christian believers read that didn't make it into the canon of Scripture or they didn't make it into the Bible, but they were popular books and influential books. And so from about two hundred BC. All the way past 100 AD, you have uh, apocalyptic genre. Now, in the Old Testament, we see it in books like uh, Joel and Zechariah, uh, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. Of course, we've we've alluded a lot to Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel in our study of Revelation because John is just always pulling out of there, which has been a fascinating work, uh, study for me. I, I never realized how much of the Old Testament John actually used, and it feels like he uses it 90 percent of the time, which helps us understand what he's trying to talk about. But even back in that day, uh, there's books like uh, these aren't books you're going to be able to buy at Mardell's, by the way. But it's like <laughs> Second Second Baruch, uh, Four Ezra, I call it Fourth Ezra, um, Second Enoch. I mean, those those were books that were incredibly popular. In fact, uh, in the new one of the New Testament books mentions e- the Book of Enoch. Uh, not to say it's Utterly authoritative, just to say, like, hey, you guys know the story of when, you know, the angel, res- you know, the, all this kind of stuff, that's taken from Enoch. So these were books that were actually popular. Uh, in John's day, there were some other books. There was the, and I have them listed here, uh, things like, uh, actually, after John's day, The Apocalypse of Peter, The Testament of Hezekiah, The Vision of Isaiah, The Shepherd of Hermas. This is actually a book I had to study when I was in college. Those came around the second century, which shows you that not only was it popular in John's day in the first century, but as it bends into the second century, people still kept writing books with that kind of flavor. So when Revelation came out, so to speak, it wasn't surprising as far as how it, the style that it was, uh, because it was kind of the rage back then. For us, we we hardly understand what it means because none of us write an apocalyptic genre. We don't write with a lot of images and symbols. And, you know, we take most of the stuff we write today is linear, it's literal, and that's what junk's so many people up, but those are just examples about how that genre developed. Uh, It it developed a long time ago. I mean, uh, 200 years before John ever stepped foot on the stage, Uh, but it was well in play by the time he was there and well afterwards. So there you go. So this
0: might just be speculative, but um, how familiar were people with the genre? that enabled them to interpret revelation? Like, was it just as hard
1: for them as it is for us? Or is it like, Oh
0: no, yeah, we get this. No,
1: I don't, I don't think it was as hard because they were conversant with a lot of these books. Cause you have to, you got to remember kids, uh, the, the new Testament wasn't compiled at this point. I mean, John's writing revelation. So the the new Testament church doesn't have all the books of the Bible. And so there are a bunch of things floating around. Uh, they'd see first Corinthians or second Corinthians. By the way, there was a third Corinthians. We've never found it. Now, the reason we haven't, I would think in God's providence is that it doesn't need to be in the Bible, but that it just shows you there were things going around. And when you're a New Testament Christian, you have all these, you know, there's, there's not like an authoritative group, a publishing house going, this is out of, this is out of Jerusalem press. This is all the really good stuff. All these stuff, all this stuff's going around. And, and the Christians in John's day were incredibly familiar with Ezra, fourth Ezra. They knew. Second Baruch, and it talks about um, all kinds of things that Revelation talks about. So, I th- there's no question that John's conversant also with those books and uses some images. His, his stuff's out of the Old Testament, right? But he you can tell that he's conversant with some of the imagery and the the, the phraseology that was kind of um, hip if you will, in his day. And so yes, for the first century guys, the Christians, they had read most all of these books, if you will, and so when John's book came in, it was much easier to decipher than it is for us. First of all, they knew their Old Testament but like the back of their hand. Uh, and they also knew some of these other books as well. So when it talks about, you know, a thousand years or seven this or uh, different kinds of images, they were well-versed in that. So no, I, it was, I believe it was much easier for them because when you see in the first century church, they're not debating about what it all means. They just start getting on mission and they die by the, by the I don't know how many, but by the droves and they're still following Jesus. So <laughs> they seem to have got revelation. We're still fighting about, you know, is this about a laser beam coming out of some, you know, Russian Soviet era uh, satellite. And they just were like, yeah, this is what we're doing here now. We know Jesus is coming in the future, but the beast is already upon the earth in some sense, spiritually. It looks like it's Rome. Caesar looks like he's at least some form of the antichrist and we got to stay faithful. Or if we don't, uh, they're going to call us to sell out and be idolaters. Now that's the theme all the way through Revelation. So whatever they, however they interpreted it, it sounded like it stuck. Hmm. So. All right. I don't know if that was even answered your question. Oh, absolutely. No, it did for sure.
0: All right, um, new heavens and new earth. Mm. The question is, how will the new heavens and new earth be formed?
1: Slowly. No, I don't know. The Bible really doesn't give us that much about the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you're just kind of following with us, pardon me, the new heavens and the new earth are what, what, what the Bible teaches about our, our eternal, uh, excuse me, our, our, eternity together with God and his people for, you know, the rest of the ages until there is no age, you know, world without, without end. Um, I, I think When I heard, because I knew that was going to be one of the questions, um, when you look at what the Bible says, it doesn't say a lot. It does talk about, you know, the heavens and earth will be uh, burned up. And then the next thing it says, there are the heavens and the earth. Well, are they burned up or are they not? But it seems like burned up and that kind of language is the same kind of language we've already seen in Revelation where it talks about, uh, the refiner's fire of, of persecution. We see that also in the New Testament. First uh, Corinthians, we see that language where fire's used not literally, but as a refining kind of thing. And so uh, it seems like the better idea is, if you think about it theologically, God creates the world in perfection in Genesis one. And if, and if Revelation 21 is the mirror end of that, uh, it's not that he trashes the world, he renews it and refines it, refines it, gets rid of sin and death and not only do we have a new heaven, it's fully redeemed, and it's even better than Genesis 1. And so, like, in Revelation, I mean, you even see the same images. So, in Genesis 1 and 2, I think I mentioned this at the forum, but you have a river, of, uh, you know, there's a river that runs through it. And it's not a movie where you're fly fishing, sorry. There's a river that runs through it. There's, uh, there's precious, you know, there's gold, and uh, there's the tree of life. Um, and then when you get to Revelation, you see the same kind of language. You see Revelation, especially Revelation 21, you, you see, or 22, I'll, I'll just read it to you. Here's uh, verses one and two. Then he showed me the river of the water of life. Oh, there's, we've seen that before, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God. On either side of the river of life was the tree of life. Well, I've seen that before. So we're, John's intentionally showing us like what we see at the end of the age is the, is the original creation renewed and restored and fully redeemed and even better. Because now it's it says that uh, on the on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves were the tree uh, excuse me and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and so uh, it, it seems like what we have here is something way bigger it was just Adam and Eve. In Genesis one and two and three, and in Revelation twenty one and twenty two, it's it's the world redeemed, God's people redeemed. So it's not just Adam and Eve; it's Adams and Eves; it's all of us together, uh, where God once again dwells with man in eternal, you know, in, in eternal bliss. So, um, <clears throat> I would say that's that that seems to be much more biblical uh, than God just burns it all up. I got to start over. I, I, it seems like He redeems; uh, He didn't burn us up. He redeems mm. us. Yeah, it seems to be the same with like the same glorified thing. bodies. Same it's thing like, with Jesus. He doesn't yeah. like burn up his body. He redeems it and glorifies it. So I, that, that would be the same for us is what I would say. All right. All right, in light
0: of uh, what you taught us, uh, what we all you know, preached on for the mark of the beast, yeah. is there
1: hope for people? There's still hope for people now. You know, it's funny. My dad asked me the same question. And I guess when, when in Revelation, John's really trying to do a contrast between these are true believers and these people are, are not. And so he uses that, that kind of uh, shorthand. He says, they're the dwellers of the earth. The earth is their home. It's essentially their God. And earth doesn't just necessarily mean like terra firma. It's talking about the, the world itself, the fallen world. And so he's constantly trying to contrast God's people with those that are followers of the beast. And so it seems like if you read that enough, you're just going to think, oh, well, I guess if you're an earth dweller, if you're a follower of the beast, you can never be you can never become a follower of the lamb. I there's two things I would say to that. One is I think John is writing that to encourage believers that are compromising as to really check that their faith is real and to call them out. I mean, I think Bruce is going to get into this uh, and may have already gotten into this by the time this airs when he talks about, I think, in Revelation nineteen, where it says, um, speaking about the prostitute of Babylon, basically the fallen city and all of its all of its the fallen city and all of its followers, where Jesus says, "Come out from her. And he's talking to it looks like believers saying, You've been living too long with this compromise, you need to come out before judgment comes as to prove your that your faith is true. And so I think that's the first audience is basically Christians or people that profess to be Christians, but you're not really sure if they are or not based on their life, based on their, their. and so Revelation is like a gracious warning to say, hey, you, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Thought I'd get a good rap <laughs> thing in there. Um, but that's, that's really the, the the truth behind it. And so uh, it, it's, it's kind of like that holy warning because we know God's people are his people, but God's people listen to those warnings and they come to him. Uh, But what if you're like, no, he's just a flat out earth dweller. He's an unbeliever. Well, I I think all the other things Jesus ever said applied. Uh, We're all in a sense, earth dwellers before Jesus redeems us. So I would say that nothing's frozen. Revelation is not meant to be like, here's the, here's your soteriology or here's the, sorry, here's what salvation looks like. And it's frozen period. He's just trying to describe two different groups of people. And you need to make sure that you're in this group, not that group. But the way that you go into the people of God is to embrace Jesus. So, what I would tell people is: uh, Is there still hope for people now? Well, absolutely. Why are we still here? I mean, as long as we're still here, and based on what we saw in Revelation about the two witnesses, yeah. as long as the witnesses, which is the church, we would say, has the authority to share the gospel, it says until the God says until their last testimony is finished, then we're still got a mission to do. And that that assumes that God's still saving people all the way to the end. So yeah, there's always hope. That's why we're on mission. Hmm. All right, this is a question that we
0: somewhat addressed a couple weeks ago on a podcast, uh, but it has to do with um, judgment seat for
1: believers. So when does a judgment seat happen for believers, and what is that like? Okay, so I'm not too sure where that question comes from. Here's what I think it comes from. Um, We talked about, if y'all missed the forum, please watch it because this is, how I'm going to explain this This may not make sense, but there, there, there are basically four views about how people interpret the end times based on the kind of a theological lenses they look at. I don't know why I had to do this, but I just wanted to make sure those are lenses, y'all. After these lenses. And one of those groups, which is the most popular in North America, but is the minority in church history and frankly globally, is dispensationalism. And dispensationalism, and I'm not going to get all into it, but uh, the short of it is in their system of the end times, there's like... Literally, depending on which dispensationalist you ask, could be between eight to seven, you know, six to eight different judgments. Uh, there's a judgment. At Eden, there's a judgment when Jesus dies on the cross. There's a judgment when He comes back for believers. There's a judgment that happens for unbelievers when they go in the millennium. There's a judgment, excuse me. There's judgment after the millennium. There's another. So there's like a million judgments. When other views might like we we just got one. You know we were tired. We just thought of one. We just see one in here. Um, so when it says what does the judgment see it look like for believers, you, you may have to ask different people to get different answers. When I look at the Bible. Uh, And I'm not trying to again, Jesus, juke anybody. It seems like there's a singular event where Jesus comes back, and there's judgment. Here's, I'll give you some scripture uh, why I believe this. Uh, Revelation, since we're in that, 2012 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's the book you want to be in, right? And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So, so it looks like you have uh, people who, which we will say later on the Lamb's book of life, you have people that are written, their names written in the Lamb's book of life, a la Christians, and you have people that they're, they're not. And that all seems to happen at one time. Uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, Matthew twelve thirty six. but I tell you the truth, uh, but I tell you that everyone who, uh, excuse me, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Now notice how he says, he doesn't say days of judgment. He says the day of judgment. It's singular Matthew 24, 26. He says this 10 chapters later, but concerning that day, an hour, no one knows. And we can get into another question about when, how do we know. But he says, no one knows that hour, only the, only, uh, nor the son, but the father only. So when it says, w- what's going to happen? Uh, first of all, it all, I would say, based on these texts and others, it all happens at once. And uh, if you're a believer, uh, based on what I understand in the scriptures, my sins that I have, uh, that I've had, those, are, those have been forgiven. Uh, Romans eight one maybe the best text ever for Christians when we talk about Judgment Day, it says, for there is no judgment, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? And so, uh, when people ask, what's Judgment Day going to be like? H- here's what I think. <clears throat> when you look at what happens, think about when you die. Uh, so, let's say, Ryan, that that uh, I'll use you an example. Let's say that Jesus comes back in the year 3000, just for the sake of argument. All right. You're probably not going to make it to 3000 that year. So you're going to die before Jesus returns. When you die, where where are you going? You shouldn't have much to think about this. (laughs) I'm going to be before Jesus. Okay. You're going to be before Jesus. So, uh, why would Jesus then judge you later in the year 3000 if you've already made it to heaven? I mean, is it going to be a, is it going to be a surprise to you when you come to before judgment day? Like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know why we kept you in heaven for the last 900 years, but right now you're, so there's, there's a reason why when people think about judgment days, like, well, my fate's going to be decided. No, it was decided as, as you eloquently preached on, it was decided at the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus, that was your judgment day. And so, uh, that's why when you die, you go to be with Jesus. So your judgment day already happened. So, what happens on the judgment day? It's, it's more like, think about this, it's more like a public proclamation to the universe of what God has already done in Christ for you. So when you're at Judgment Day in the year 3000, in a glorified body as you stand before uh, Christ the Judge, is that Jesus isn't going to tell you anything you don't already know, because you've already been with him for 900 years, so to speak. Um, he's just going to say, well done my good and faithful servant, now enter into the joy of your master. Now you're going into a new eternity. Not this ethereal heaven that we don't even know where it is. We're talking about a new heavens and new earth with a new body along with saints and, and so he's publicly declaring you just to the to the to the creation so what is a condemnation for unbelievers really for us is a a public proclamation that's why it's all done it's almost like a like a judicial rendering for the world to hear that's what happens at judgment day for believers now i know and we talked about this i think last time are they going to be is that where you get you know Here's where you get your crowns. Well, I don't know why I did it with money, but it sounds like you're getting this and you're going to get that. I don't know. I don't know about that. I just know that there's no condemnation. So there, It's not a sad day for us, that's for sure. And, uh, it, and it won't be like, hey, am I going to find out if I'm in or not? It'll be the public declaration that not only have, are you uh, justified, but now you get to enter into the, into the new heavens and the new earth. Hmm. Good. It's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. All right, Matthew 24, 30
0: uh, talks about the uh, tribes of the earth mourning. And so why why do they mourn when they see the Son of Man? Is it a fear of judgment?
1: Yeah, I following. think it is. Uh, I mean, this may be a very short answer. I think it is. Uh, so, some scholars think it might be a mourning of repentance, which that would be awesome. I don't know any Christian that would not want that. Uh, it just seems like this passage in Matthew 24, 30 is also, we've already seen it in Revelation. It says, uh, "Well, we ha- we may not have seen it for those of us that are already preparing other messages, like you are. What's the text that you're working on now? What chapter are you doing? Twenty? 20- you're at twenty-two already. Right, yeah, right now 22. I'm working on the epilogue. so some of us are already working on stuff that may not have come out by the time this pod drops, but we're already seeing like I'm working on uh, Revelation 19 along with Aaron Lutz, and we see Jesus return and the language that John's using to describe Jesus is taken directly out of Ezekiel 40 through 48." And if I remember correctly, Isaiah, I think 36, something to that effect. And both of those talk about God uh, in Christ now has a rod of iron by which he smashes the nations uh, and they mourn. That doesn't sound like repentance. And so I I think we're already seeing in Revelation some echo of what we see here, that when Jesus returns, the nations here are represented as the fallen nations uh, bent against God, the the world of the earth dwellers, and that Jesus comes back and they mourn because he's, he's not coming back as the lamb. He comes back as the lion. To judge, and so I take it as mourning, and I think there's multiple biblical evidence to do so as such. So I don't, I don't know specifically why that question got asked there. I mean, it's a good question. It it could be repentance, but it seems like it's Is not. Is the
0: idea of it being uh, a morning of repentance that the nations have an opportunity to still repent even after seeing Jesus return?
1: Is that the idea? Yeah. Think? I, 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 so again, it all depends on your. I mean, I'm not trying to interpret the well, question. Well, no, 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 no. It's a good question. Again, so if you're a if you happen to be a premillennialist or a dispensationalist, and I'll try to make this uh, accessible here, you believe that when Jesus returns that that it's not over. Uh, frankly, if you believe that there's a literal thousand years once Jesus returns, there's you, you still believe that you you have to believe that Jesus has come back, but there's still sin and death, which that's hard for me to get over. I don't see that in the text of scripture, but again, I, you know, I could be wrong, but it's like Jesus returns, but sin and death hasn't been rid of. So you have a, a thousand year reign. That's, that's a literal reign where Jesus is sitting in Jerusalem, reigning over uh, the nations, including Israel. And uh, there's, there's time to repent and believe Jesus there. Uh, that that's how some would interpret that. The, the problem they get into is that that starts Revelation twenty. It, it Revelation nineteen just ended with Jesus destroying all of the evildoers, all the dwellers of the earth. So there's no one to start off with, but Christians, but their argument is, well, over a thousand years, these Christians are going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're, they're just not going to like Jesus anymore. And the devil will be let loose at the end, let loose at the end and he'll deceive them into going against Jesus, even though he's right there in front of them, and he just dusted everyone a thousand years earlier, they're going to try to take him down again. And so um, what, what those guys would argue is there's a thousand years they have to repent uh, of when those People become unbelievers. And so uh the other guys, the amillennials and the postmillennials will be like, no, um judgment comes. It's a point a man wants to die, and then the judgment judgment happens as soon as Jesus comes back, and they are mourning because there is no time left. So, I mean those are the those are kind of the two views. I'm I'm obviously I'm partial to one because I just said I am, but I think they're legitimate. Christians, for sure, good, godly Christians have believed different kinds of things. Uh, so, I, take your pick. I think textually, it looks like that the nations mourn. It's because um, uh, they they mourn at the end of Revelation. It sounds like well, they're getting judged. If they, we do see some mourning at the beginning of Revelation. Maybe that is a chance for them to to repent. But I I think it's kind of like debating. Uh, it's, it's almost uh, a moot point because until Jesus returns, we all have, it's, it's where we talk about the patience of the Lord with great patience. He endures this stuff so that we have a chance to come to Jesus. But I, I tend to be of the opinion when Jesus comes back, we done, that's Mm. it. I mean, it's judgment day now. So, yeah.
0: Are are there signs that point to an imminent return of Jesus? Is there anything in revelation that will tell us when the second coming is at hand?
1: You know that's a that's a really good question. Again, we're going to go back it all depends on your your millennial view cuz if you're a, if you're a dispensationalist I'm not I'm not knocking you. If you're a dispensationalist and and you believe that and they believe that the church and and Israel are doing two separate plans, then there's a lot of things you have to have, there are a lot of boxes that need to be ticked off for in order for Jesus to come back. That's why people that are dispensational in their belief are so bullish about being pro-Israel. Uh, not that the other views are anti-Israel, but they're like, no, we really, Israel has to rebuild the temple. You know, some some dispensationalists go so far as like, that's where they're going to reinstitute the sacrifices. Uh, you know, they've, they've got to have this much land for Jesus to come back. Uh, there's all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of shoes waiting to drop. If, if For those that are of different... Perspectives. Uh, I would say, and I, I said this last uh, at the forum, I said, Jesus, we all agree that Jesus's return is uh, personal, corporal, uh, glorious. And I said imminent, and maybe that wasn't the best word. I would say impending, if imminent's not the best. I, I would say uh, Jesus can come anytime that he wants to. Uh, and the reason I think impending and or imminent are probably better term, maybe impending's a better term, is there, there could be things that, that need to happen. Or not. I mean, there's a debate about that. So, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, John seems to think the Antichrist is already among us. He said the Antichrist was already there at least in spirit in the first century and that his work's been in every century since. And he sure thinks the Antichrist is well at work in Rome. And I'm not too sure he doesn't see the Caesar as the Antichrist. Now, that's not a capital A Antichrist. That's, you know, just a manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist. And so uh, when we see the signs of the ends of the age that Jesus talks about, what well, he's like, wars, rumors of wars, famine, drought. We, when have we not seen those things? And I think that's Jesus's point. I can come back any time. And he uses language like, I come as a thief in the night. And I do, all. it sounds like he could come whenever he wants to. And when I read Paul, it sounds like Paul thinks he could come any day. So I, I whatever I want to believe, I don't, I kind of want to shell that in what I see those guys believe. And so um, I, I do think that there's going to be an increasing in intensity so if anything, I'm looking for an increase in intensity. If I'm looking for like, well, how do you know it's the end of the end of the end times? It seems like we're already in the tribulation. When does it go from tribulation to great tribulation? I, I don't know. I'm one guy that lives in North America, but I don't live in China where they're getting put up in, uh, you know, they're getting killed or in prison. Uh, and I don't live in these other parts of the world where they experience this kind of persecution. So um, that, that's why I'm like, maybe, maybe not. Uh, because I'm not I'm not the global thermometer of when it actually turns up in its intensity. And when does the chief or the capital A, antichrist come? I mean, is he going to announce, hey, I'm the antichrist? I don't think he would. So, uh, and I don't know how long that would happen. So I, I don't think we sit on our hands. I mean, obviously, how does it end? Uh, Revelation says, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So I think they think it's it could be at any time. I want to hold that same position. So I'd say it's impending, it's coming, it's over us. But as far as like, is there... Are there things that need to happen? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I think there's a greater intensity. I'll summarize. There's a greater intensity, but I don't, I wouldn't know what that looked like. I mean, I say that. I mean, I I, I can only experience what I experience here. Maybe in reading into the news, but it seems like it's pretty bad. When we we have a stat that's been validated that says more Christians have been killed in the 20th century than all 19 centuries prior, that sounds like an intensification to me. But I I don't want to be the guy saying, hey, it's, it's next week he's coming. Uh, he, he, I think he could. Uh, I'm not going to live like uh, I'm waiting on something to happen. Uh, but I'm well aware that something may need to based on what we see in the scriptures as far as intensity. You know, we've always taught at Clear Creek the already not yet. So these signs are already with us, but they may not yet be with us in their fullness. I'm totally excited. We, we've said that. We've even talked about, hey, we believe we're in the great, we're, we're in the tribulation. When does it become like super hard tribulation for everywhere? I, I don't know. I don't know. But but we're on our toes, that's for sure. Hmm. And until then, we make disciples of all nations, right? That's what we do. And we do it if we're in the great tribulation, we're making disciples. So we do that till God tells us we can't do it anymore, and, and he comes back. All right. Final question here. So what is the difference
0: between an open-handed view of respecting but differing interpretations of Scripture and saying that all Scripture is open to your own interpretation and all views are equally valid? Does that make sense? Kind of a long Uh, question. Yeah, break that down again. All right, so what's the difference between saying we have an open-handed view of respecting but differing interpretations of Scripture, especially around like Revelation? So we want to be able to say, hey, we're open-handed towards this. But then does it go so far as to say, oh, we're open-handed about uh, all interpretation of Scripture.
1: Uh, It's kind of like up to your own. Everyone's everyone's interpretation is valid. Yes. No, we wouldn't say that, and I'll tell you why. For, for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, I I think one guy said a long time ago, he said, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're just not entitled to your own facts. And when we, when we, when, when I say at the forum, there are these four major views, uh, of interpreting the millennium that we see in revelation 20. Uh, the reason there are four views is because they've developed over time and the church, uh, in, in, in pretty much its bulk has affirmed at least three of them. I know uh, we talked about dispensationalism being the new kid on the block. But even with that, you, you have a quite sizable amount of Christians that are intelligent, that treat the Bible seriously. So there's some factors I'm putting in here. You know, they have some intelligence. They're gifted as teachers. They interpret the Bible seriously. They try to use the same rules of interpretation. So in other words, they all went to uh, Jenna Craft and Aaron Chester's How to Study the Bible class, and they all got A's. And so uh, the same reason you and I went to seminary where they, you know, they, they helped train you and teach you on what's called hermeneutics, which is the science and art of interpreting scripture, because to to go back to how to study the Bible here, I mean, there are different rules for different parts of the Bible. And when I say rules, different rules of how you interpret it to to interpret it correctly, because what what you don't want to be is you don't want to be in that small group at Clear Creek that everyone's like, well, this is what I think it means. This is what I think it means where it's just a pooling. Forgive me you all. It's just kind of a pooling of ignorance. And everyone just makes up an idea, whatever they feel cool about. When the truth is, there's work to be done. And I, I'll say it again: if no one has ever taken how to study the Bible, go take it. And by by the way, as a corollary to that, I know we have for women, uh, women of the Word. My wife teaches that. Tiffany Havaducci teaches that, um, and, and others: uh, Denise Ward and so on and so forth. Listen. Uh, if you don't want to do how to study the Bible, you can also do, uh, if you're, if you're a woman, uh, you can do women of the word and they, they'll teach you some of those same kind of ways to look at the scriptures that keeps you honest and has some integrity in it. So when I say something's open handed as far as, as far as closed handed, as opposed to closed handed, what we're saying is there've been enough Christians throughout the years that have seen this doctrine and they're not dogmatic about it. Cause we're not, ex- we can't be exactly sure with the kind of precision that we could like, did Jesus rise from the dead? And I think it's just, we're just trying to be fair. Now, there are churches that have said, hey, our view of the end times is closed-handed. We, we just don't think that's wise because we don't see that in history. Uh, we have a view. I mean, internally with our teaching team, we're, we have a view, but we feel um, the pastoral role for us is not to tell people uh, this is the only view. That's why we did the forum. Now, we can tell you what we think about it, but it's open-handed. Uh, like, for example, like for baptism for us, we feel the Bible teaches that you're baptized after your faith, right? Well, some people get dunked in the water. Some people get sprinkled on after they've been uh, become Christians. And we just said that's open-handed. If you've come into our fellowship and you've been baptized after becoming a Christian uh, and they, we're not going to argue about the amount of water, we're going to do it through full immersion because that's what we see the Bible do. So that's open-handed. Um, speaking in tongues is another issue. Um, we don't do that. As a community, we don't do that publicly. We even have language in that in our missional community that talks about how we treat that. But we have, I know people in our church that like, I speak privately at my house in a prayer language. Now, we can debate whether we think that's accurate or not, but there's enough people over the last... Uh, decades if you will if not centuries that have said yeah there's a legitimate way to do that and there's good scholars that, that would teach that we'd say okay that's open hand now here's how we're going to do it at church or not do it but as far as like can we have fellowship we're open handed about that um, that's different that's when you've kind of done the work um, so we, we, so when we talk about like why isn't everyone's opinion valid because not everyone's opinion is valid I, I, you know if you go into your doctor and uh, let's just say they find that you got cancer you're not going to tell your doctor, you know what? I know that you want me to go on this protocol, this 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 and this and this. But listen, man, I just saw something on Facebook that says if I drink 10,000 gallons of of raspberry juice, I'm going to be okay. And they're going to be like, "You know you're not because they're the experts in the room." And so uh, your opinion is not valid because you don't have the knowledge or the education or the training to make those kinds of assessments. So uh, I, I use that as an illustration, not to say that the, the Bible's left to professionals. It's not. It's why we do these classes. But you ought to have some sense of education and training and discipleship in God's word to know how to use God's word. So uh, that's why uh, sometimes when people go, well, this is what I think it's because they're just pulling it out of nowhere and it makes them feel good. And that's not, that's really not doing the Bible. Well, it's really not honoring God's word at all. And so if you love God's word, you ought to love how to learn to use God's word. That's what I would say. I don't know if that, really answers your question it does no it does okay it well does. that's that would be my answer then all right well that's all the questions i have
0: on yeah. here but i'm sure we can probably drum up some more <laughs> if you want to get in the hot seat again it's whatever but, you want to uh, do uh, but otherwise, whatever you I, think, do. I think we we've put you on the hot seat enough with doing the forum the q a at the forum yeah. and then now even round two of A. Yeah. Q&A, so yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your investment in this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to watch it or share it with a friend, make sure you go to clearcreateresources.org where you can also find articles and a whole bunch of other content. Again, my name is Ryan. Thanks for listening.